from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. It's due south on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Friday, welcome in. Friday means, of course, it's time for our North Carolina News Roundup, in which we review and listen back to the week that was here in North Carolina. We'll get to a sampling of sounds from across our state in just a moment. Let us first welcome in our panelist to uh, help us provide context and knowledge and just better understand what is playing out and why uh, across our news and political landscape. It's Jason DeBruin, health reporter at WUNC, Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief from the News and Observer, Luciana Perez Uribe, state politics reporter at the NNO, and Ruben Jones, a Washington reporter covering North Carolina for Spectrum News. Hello to all of you. Hello. Hey there. Good morning. All right, topics in just a moment. First, some sounds of the week. The number one killer of our children in America is gun violence. Everyone talks about us needing to do more when there's an act of school violence. Um, well, this administration is stepping up and doing more. We're providing dollars, and we're here listening to folks on the ground. The new record means there is more virus spreading now than at any point in the history of the pandemic. That's the real concern that the voters in Northeastern North Carolina, uh, not just the African-American voters, but all the voters in Northeastern North Carolina have the privilege and opportunity of voting under legal maps. I love it. I love the brisket. I love the energy. We don't need this in Memphis. We don't need this. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Charlotte this week. Miguel Cordona, the U.S. Secretary of Education, was also in the Old North State. You heard from Jason DeBruin there, uh, an update on the COVID front. The latest litigation has been uh, filed and is playing out as it pertains to gerrymandering, redistricting at the legislative level, and Bucky's controversy in Mebane. We'll get to that later in the program. I want to just kick it off maybe a little bit differently than we have in previous iterations of the Friday News Roundup and acknowledge I know that there is a lot that I don't know, and I've learned it's okay to say I don't know, even yes as a journalist. So we have lots to discuss today. I'm not concerned with what's on our plate. However, as I laid out our roadmap for the hour, I thought, what's the lead story? (laughs) So I'm going to turn to each of you, put you on the proverbial warm seat, truly not a hot seat, a warm seat to kick off our, our hour today. Briefly, tell me, please, what was the most notable story in North Carolina news to you this week and why, Jason DeBruin? The one for me wasn't actually on my beat, so I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on it, but I think is the the gerrymandering hearing, right? I mean, we heard from Dan Blue, I think, in one of those cuts, right? I think that was probably the number one story for me this week. Don Vaughn. For me personally, we had uh, the News and Observer published several stories we had done about the new public records law. So mm-hmm. I had just been working on that for so long and seeing that that come out and going through uh, emails and schedules and everything we gotten through records. So that's that's been my focus. A lack of transparency. We will get to uh, those stories that you published, interesting stories later uh, here on the Friday News Roundup. Luciana? So I'm going to have to echo Don, I think. The package she and Abby and other colleagues worked on was really great. Um, but I, the story for myself that I worked on was one on the state health plan mm-hmm. and state employees being shifted um, over to a new Blue Cross plan. So UNC Health employees 
I've got that in the queue as well. Uh, Ruben Jones is on the line from Washington. Ruben, what was your uh, story of the week for uh, North Carolina news and political circles? There was a lot in Washington, just a kind of a, a mix of different things. Nothing one that just stood out. Uh, the vice president's trip was, I guess, significant, but not surprising. And it's going to be one that we see a lot. So I wouldn't say there was one that jumped out in particular. OK. Uh, and I, I guess I want to echo and build on what you just said, Ruben, which is I don't know that one really rose to the top. And that's why I perhaps uh, just kicked it to you, hopefully not sounding too lazy on that front. But let's roll with the vice president's visit to Charlotte. So you got the VP, you've got the Secretary of Education to our state as well. Meanwhile, this is kind of another notable story, I think, from recent days. State Employees Association of North Carolina, Scenic, endorsed a Republican for governor not named Mark Robinson. They backed the sitting treasurer, Dale Falwell, who is also seeking the GOP nomination in that gubernatorial race. I think in other previous times, these might have felt like more significant stories. I don't know if I am just increasing in my cynicism. I don't know if we've had so many visits from the vice president and uh, Biden administration surrogates, but I kind of went, eh, so like, uh, all right, they're here again. Uh, Don, jump in here. I mean, Kamala Harris has come to North Carolina a lot, covered a lot of her visits. So it's, you know, okay, well, it's an election year. They're going to come like she's here now. You know, the Bidens, I'm sure, are going to show up. Trump is going to show up. You know, Nikki Haley is going to show up. It's just kind of par for the course of it's that it's that season of, of visits on the the scenic endorsement of Dale Folwell. I wrote about that. That's pretty significant because Folwell is, you know, polls are indicators of things, but they're definitely not, you know, accurate a lot of the time. It just kind of is sort of that temperature taking and uh, an endorsement of Folwell gives him a little bit of more of that name recognition where in uh, Republican, you know, gubernatorial primary polls, it's Robinson leads and Folwell and, and Graham are, are further down the list. But there's always a lot of people that haven't even decided yet because they don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. And Folwell's the treasurer, but not a lot of people may no. not even know there is a state tre- treasurer, right. much less what they do, you know. Yeah, if I can maybe build off that, Please. the treasurer oversees the state health plan, which we'll get into a little bit later, mm-hmm. and also the the um, retirement funds for all state employees. And so there's a lot of overlap or a lot of, there's a big relationship, we should say, between the uh, uh, treasurer Falwell or the treasurer's position right. in general and scenic, because that's, you know, the 750 some odd thousand people, including you and me, mm-hmm. who are on the state health plan and who have state benefits, including a retirement account through the state. And so uh, it, it sort of... It is an indicator, I think, that Scenic is at least happy or happy enough with what the treasurer has done for state employees that they, uh, that, you know, that they want to back him for his run for governor. And they think he'd be better than Robinson or Graham for, right. for them, for their own future. Right. Yeah. And this isn't Scenic's only endorsement. Presumably they will offer another endorsement come general. Could be a Republican, could be a Democrat. We don't know. As to just one other bit of context here, Don, your point about the, the treasurer who think some listeners are like, oh, yeah, state treasurer. What does he or she do again? Uh, they just so happen to oversee a $120 billion pension fund. It's the third largest public pension fund in the country. And the treasurer is the sole fiduciary of that, which I think is interesting. Uh, Ruben, if you would build on us for uh, the, the context of the vice president's visit here, also the secretary of education, Miguel Cardona, who you spoke with this week, what was, getting away from maybe the rhetoric or the politicking of it, what was significant uh, whether it was an announcement or something else that you gleaned from uh, their trips to North Carolina this week. 
So uh, uh, I think we forget sometimes that there was a lot of bipartisan legislation that did happen here in Congress back in 2022. You had the bipartisan infrastructure law, you had the gun safety law, you had CHIPS legislation, and North Carolina is starting to see the impact of quite a bit of that. The vice president was in Charlotte to talk about this bipartisan gun safety law that Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican, was actively involved in. No House Republicans in the state voted for it. All House Democrats in the state did vote for it. And so she was here to talk about how do we combat school safety and uh, fix some of the problems that they have seen. Charlotte has seen a significant increase in juveniles involved in youth crime uh, last year. And so she laid out about $12 million in grants under this law that North Carolina schools will get. The education secretary talked to me about that earlier this week and said, uh, you know, the hope is that they can use that to uh, build extracurriculars in the schools, connect with nonprofits and agencies in the community to hopefully uh, stop some of this violence that we're seeing. We're going to turn just briefly back to the vice president's visit to Charlotte this week uh, to hear some of what she had to say. We are announcing $285 million as part of our administration's initiative to hire and train mental health counselors in schools. In North Carolina, $12 million of those dollars will be received, um, which will include the ability and resources to hire 332 new counselors. These are huge sums of money to a layperson, but as we think about 115 some odd school districts across the state or a significant school district like Charlotte Mecklenburg, what does 285 get you? What, what, can you give us a sense of how impactful this money may or may not be? Yeah, look, I mean, it's not going to solve the problem, obviously, um, or, or or really be enough. Any school expert or any school advocate will probably tell you that. But nonetheless, $12 million, $12 million is a good amount of money. $285 million across the country is a, is a lot of money. And I'm not really breaking any news here, but I think we all know that Counselors have been eroded out of our schools, um, and that has contributed to uh, worsening mental health care for, well, everybody, but including students. And I, I think the research is pretty clear that clearly guns are you know, a major contributor to violence, but so is a lack of mental health care. And so if you can um, sort of package these two items together, improve mental health care for students, for teachers, for everybody – along with more gun safety measures, I think there's a pretty reasonable expectation that you would see a lowering of violence in schools. One more quick question on uh, surrogate visits, Harris and Cardona. Uh, We'll have one of you take this just briefly, and then we're going to step aside for a moment. But I'm curious as to what your approach is. And Don, I'll turn to you. Um, You know, as a a politics and government reporter, how much attention will you pay to these visits uh, across the next eight, nine, ten months? It depends on what they're doing. Of course, we're going to cover it because it's the president's the vice president or a former president or you know, a high profile person. So so we go. The news is, you know, it's up to what are they here for? Or if they're just here to promote somebody and they come every other week, then that's less newsworthy than if there's something actually significant happening during their visit. Don Vaughn of the News and Observer is here on the Due South North Carolina Friday News Roundup, along with her NNO colleague, Luciana Perez-Uribe, Jason DeBruin, health reporter at WNC. And on the line from Washington is Ruben Jones, who works for Spectrum News. Coming up in our review of news and politics, we'll head west on I-40 with a controversy over a mega gas station. You may know it as Bucky's. But first, on the other side, a check-in with each of our panelists on some of the reporting 
that they have done in recent days. I'm Jeff Tabiri. This is the Friday North Carolina News Roundup. Rolls along in a moment here on Due South on WUNC. Welcome back. It's the North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Due South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. On this day, 159 years ago, a battle commenced at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. The Union Army and Navy returned to try to claim Fort Fisher. Now, the North had done some reconnaissance in previous weeks of the mighty fort, which is located in New Hanover County. Initially, Union forces decided that the site would be too much to overtake. But then on January 12, 1865, they returned, and for the next two and a half days, federal ships bombarded the fort on both land and sea. On the 15th of January, more than 3,000 Union infantry, including the 27th U.S. Colored Troops, assaulted the land face. After several hours of hand-to-hand combat, federal troops captured the fort that night on January 15th of 1865. The Confederate Army evacuated their remaining forts along the Cape Fear, Shortly thereafter, and then within weeks, the Union claimed Wilmington. After that, after the port city of North Carolina had fallen, Confederate supplies soon ran out, and the American Civil War would end less than three months later. On a much lighter, more modern-day aside, Fort Fisher is a beautiful state historic site. If you have never been, I highly recommend it. Literally the best sunset in North Carolina I've ever seen. Fort Fisher looking west across the... uh, Across the Cape Fear. It's a, it's a beautiful site. So anyway, uh, North Carolina, Friday News Roundup, just dropping in those historical nuggets uh, for you, the listener. For me, uh, the researcher, I have had fun going and finding some of these because I had no idea that that was 159 years ago today. All right, we're going to pinwheel here in our second segment. We're going to go uh, panelist to panelist, first to Washington and Reuben Jones of Spectrum News. Congress is back in, a newish speaker. However, seems like the same old movie approaching a government shutdown. It appears a deal has been reached, and it appears that this has upset some hardline conservatives. Where do things stand, and are any members of the North Carolina delegation playing a notable role here? Things were looking quite good earlier this week. Congress Mm. came back from a long recess Sunday night. An agreement was announced between the Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, about avoiding a government shutdown. And then the week played out, and as we tend to saw last year, things start to get quite messy within the House Republican Party. There are a number of hardline Republicans who are very concerned about what Johnson has put forward and uh, are very concerned about even his potential uh, leadership. So we could have a little bit of deja vu from last year. There's definitely that fear about here. And, and you know, the shutdown is coming very close. They want to do a temporary uh, funding measure to keep things open. But right now things are looking a little sticky uh, in the House Republicans. What's the deadline here that they need to uh, uh, figure this thing out or, or see it shut down? There's two temp. There's two. Uh, they split it into two. I believe it's the 19th and the second. Uh, double check me on that. But uh, to uh, to avoid a partial government shutdown and then a full one. So uh, they're running out of time. And big picture, again, like I note the repetitive nature of this. But like we just did this. They just ousted a speaker, and we just had a new speaker. And but it's like if government's going to function, there's there's got to be some level of agreement or some level of of spending. I don't mean to be overly reductive sounding about it but but talk to me about like this isn't there's nothing new it's just a new face at the top yes 
Yeah, I mean, eventually you have to find some sort of compromise and deal because you've got to split Congress. And it can't just be Republicans. It can't just be Democrats. One Republican walked out of the meeting with Speaker Johnson. He said, quote, he has no plans to do anything but surrender. And so uh, there's Republican fears about Speaker Johnson, and uh, it's kind of unclear where we're going now. That's Reuben Jones in Washington. Let's turn to Don Vaughn, uh, normally out of Raleigh in the state legislature here in our Durham studios on this Friday. Don, you published multiple stories this week about the impact of a new public records law and how this shields duly elected state lawmakers from some level of transparency. To start, just what is the story about in two or three sentences? Uh, well, basically, the General Assembly doesn't follow the law that other public officials do. They changed it, so they were exempt from being compelled to pr- provide public records the way uh, the rest of government does. We're talking about emails. We're talking about uh, correspondence. What else are we talking about? And ultimately, why should listeners care? Why is this important? Well, you know, there's, what, 10 and a half million people in North Carolina mm-hmm. Uh, Many of those are voters. Many of those are taxpayers. We're the ones that put all 170 people in office there, and they decided to exempt themselves from this law that that other people have to follow. And it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, they can't still give us the records. They're just not compelled to. They basically will do it to their advantage in, in one sense. And you know, the governor is subjected to the law. Council of State is subjected to the law. It doesn't mean they turn things over quickly, but they they still are subject to it. And although it's Republican written, the Democratic governor let this become law. So bipartisanship on letting it become the, a change, but also bipartisan opposition, not from the Republican lawmakers that wrote it, but for we talked about Dale Falwell. He's against it. Bill Graham, a Republican running in the uh, primary for governor, he talked about it eroding public trust and basically who's who's holding them accountable. It makes it a lot harder to do when we can't see what they're doing. So we've seen lots of litigation. We'll get to some of it later as it pertains to redistricting. That's not relevant here. But lots of lawsuits get filed specific to statutes or bills that lawmakers try to pass. Is this ripe for a legal challenge? Are there any good governance organizations that have said, eh, come on, like this this can't stick? It doesn't appear that there will be. It'd be different if it was in the Constitution, like in mm-hmm. Florida. Mm-hmm. I talked to Brooks Fuller with the uh, North Carolina Open Government Coalition about what are the chances of this. And because it was a change in the law, that's different than if it was in the Constitution. I mean, the Sunshine State for Florida really pertains to records, too. Mm -hmm. And I looked at what different states do across the country, and there's kind of a wide range of what records are public, what aren't. And a lot of this is just boring stuff. So we tested it. My colleague, Avi Bajpai, Uh, asked all the lawmakers for their emails on one particular day. And a lot of them turned them over, both parties. Uh, They're not compelled to under the law anymore, but they're literally doing the public business. The taxpayers put them there. The taxpayers pay for that building. And the taxpayers have a right to know what they're doing. Just basic things like email... um, uh, calendars. I asked, you know, the um, the three council of state members who are subject to the law for their calendars for most of the year and got those. And, and that's one of the stories we published, too. Not to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but Jason, in recent years, you have looked at the calendars of governors to try to just glean a, a better. And I'm sure you have as well done. But I know, Jason, that you have done this um, and you haven't found much because it's a relatively opaque practice. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, some of this we just learned that maybe people don't keep as good of records as they probably should have, right? Yeah, and yeah. so whenever they do turn something over, you're kind of like, well, you probably should have included this, this, and this, and uh, you, you just kind of don't get it. But I mean, this is just another step, I guess, towards shifting norms or, or lawmakers pushing the boundaries. Like, as Don said, no, this is not in our constitution, but it's generally been accepted that openness in government is something that you want for your state. Transparency is something that you want. And this latest legislature uh, looked at it and said, eh, for everybody else, sure, but not for us. And I think, you know, this doesn't affect just news reporters who want to file public records requests. I mean, this, as Don again was saying, this this is everybody. Yeah. This really reduces transparency and does not let voters, does not let the people of North Carolina uh, know what their lawmakers or get a... Get a they have now a less of an idea what lawmakers are doing. North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South on WUNC. Ruben Jones and Don Vaughn have been telling us a little bit about what they have been working on this week. Let's check in with uh, Luciana. Among your reports this week is a story about how new employees at UNC Health are no longer able to join the state's health plan. Why? Yeah, so under the budget that passed last year, um, there was a provision that said that UNC Health and ECU Health could create their own um, health plan as well as their own pension plan. And so UNC Health employees, state employees, and ECU Health state employees will no longer be on the state's pension plan um, and instead are shifting to a plan called the Optional Retirement Program, which is one that is much less used by um, you know empl- state employees. And in terms of the health plan, um, ECU did not opt to create their own one. They're sticking to the state health plan, but UNC decided to create their own health plan. And basically, it's now going to be a um, plan administered by a Blue Cross subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a pretty significant change for these new state employees joining UNC Health. Uh, I Full disclosure, I think most some listeners know this. I am a state employee. Uh, I, I, I am on the state health plan, as is Jason as well. The state health plan is, is, a, is a pretty solid uh, infrastructure uh, of, of, of health care. What are the drawbacks to this? Is it higher costs, higher premiums? Uh, is the network smaller? What, what can you tell us from a specificity standpoint? So I haven't looked too deep into the specifics of the new plan for these state employees, but I think it is significant that it's um, basically a shift away from the state's program that has been offered, you know, for years that is fairly robust. Um, And also it signifies a, um, you know, a state institution shifting away from the state plan. So um, Treasurer Falwell has spoken on the concerns about, you know, just state agency, future state agencies leaving the state's plan and how that can affect it in the future. Right. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the treasurer is, is kind of against this, right? I mean, yeah. One of, the, one of the problems here is that the state health plan does also include retirees. And so uh, the, the state health plan, it's 750,000 people, is starting to get a little bit older, starting to get a little bit sicker. And with that comes more costs. And the treasurer's main concern here is that if young workers at UNC Health now get out of the plan, that, you know, takes out younger, healthier people who are paying premiums we're into the plan, who are funding the plan, funding the the plan. People, right. and yet, and it leaves the older, sicker people who are just going to drain the costs. And so, you know, is is 
one state agency or one hospital uh, leaving, going to bankrupt the state health plan, unlikely. Um, but it could lead to higher premiums for you and me. Um, we have not seen premium increases in several years. Um, we talked earlier about Scenic's mm-hmm. support of the treasurer. That's one reason why yeah. he's been able to keep premiums uh, steady for several years. Uh, but we might see increases coming down the pike if uh, you know more state agencies form their own self-funded plans, particularly if those pools are, again, younger, healthier people. I- I'm unclear on the why here. So if someone mm-hmm. wants to jump in, was this an effort to save money? Did UNC and ECU ask? Ask for this broader context, if only briefly, is that across the last 13, 14 years, we have seen the, my word, erosion of some benefits, of some perks of being a state employee. I think of, um, you know, some of the, the, the pension options. I think of master's pay for teachers. There's been a rollback. So this is part of a larger narrative. But why here? So I think that's one of the big kind of pending questions. I haven't really gotten a firm answer on it. Um, UNC Health said that there were just some like old statutes um, that they kind of needed to look at and, you know, worked with lawmakers to get that request in. But I'm not, um, you know, not super clear to me, at least. Well, UNC thinks it can save money, right? I mean, if they if they pull out these younger, healthier workers, right, they can then care for them within their own network of hospitals, presumably at a lower cost, and then they don't have to pay as much in monthly premiums to keep them insured because I mean, maybe people uh, know this, but of course the employee pays a portion of the premiums, but the employer pays right. a significant portion well. of the uh, of the premiums as well. And so if UNC sees, hey, we can reduce the burden of ourselves, lower premiums for our workers, i.e. for us as mm-hmm. well, provide care within the UNC network of, of hospitals and primary care practices, we can end up saving a lot of money while keeping care effectively the same, or they would probably argue even make it make it better. Um, and so that that's why they really like it. But that's just part, right, of all of the large kind of amorphous group of state employees and who is a state employee and how all of that all of that works, you know, shifts on the numbers. And what we haven't talked about is the massive vacancy rate for state employees right now. And a lot of the reason for it is the money and the benefits. And all if, if somebody is thinking, well, I don't like the money, the benefits aren't as good as historically they have been. Why do I want to work in state government? And that's a major problem because obviously we need all those state employees to run the state. Yeah, great point. That's, that's a huge part of the story as well. Yeah. One more panelist to check in with on some reporting they've done this week. Jason, you've been tracking a firearm story. If I've got it right, gun purchases are up. How much? How come? Yeah, significantly up this past year, um, and especially in April. So um, maybe just a bit of history in 2020, especially in the summer during the pandemic and sort of after the murder of George Floyd during the racial justice protests, there was a massive spike in gun sales in North Carolina and across the country. Uh, Fast forward to 2021, a bit of a step down, but you know, closer to historic norms. 2022 was basically at historic levels. But then last year, there was an increase. And what had changed was that the legislature passed a new law that did not require a handgun purchase permit. So it used to be, uh, if you wanted to buy a handgun, you first had to go get a purchase permit from your county sheriff. That went away in March. And lo and behold, in April, there was a big spike in sales. Um, April was the highest selling month uh, for uh, the highest uh, sales month um, of any month last year, um, sales tapered off a little bit since then, but mm-hmm. we're 
high relative to uh, to historic numbers. Not as high as 2020 or 2021, but still up. And basically everybody agrees that it's largely due to this law change where you no longer have to get a purchase permit. Should be noted, you still have to do a background check, right? So it's not like you can just go and, right. and get one. You still need that background check, uh, but you, do, you no longer need a purchase permit from the sheriff. All right. We're going to go odds and ends, relatively quick hitters here, uh, picking up some news tidbits from around the state. Just give me a little finger. Give me eyes. Look at me if you want to jump in here uh, on any of these. It is the final day uh, for the tenure of UNC Chapel Hill Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz. He is departing for Michigan State today, again, that last day. North Carolina is receiving $26.7 million from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to buy electric school buses. The money flows from the bipartisan infrastructure law passed by Congress in 2021. This allotment will, per the governor's office, pay for 114 electric buses, 38 of which will roll around right here uh, in Durham for the Durham Public Schools. Good governance watchdog Bob Hall penned an open letter to Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, calling on the gubernatorial candidate to explain half a million dollars in what Hall says are illegal campaign transactions. Hall filed a complaint with the State Board of Elections three years ago pertaining to Robinson's 2020 campaign finance disclosures. Insurance companies want state regulators to approve homeowners' rates by an average 42 percent. The industry wants the rates to take effect August 1st. These rate hikes could vary considerably by region. The insurance companies have asked for a more than a 99 percent increase in beach areas Brunswick, Carteret, New Hanover, Onslow, and Pender counties. One Climate more. change. I mean, it's a it's a huge story. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, we we've seen it play out in in, in many other states. In Florida, uh, you heard if you watch Republican presidential debate, the Florida governor got hit by uh, Nikki Haley about this. But um, it's it's a big issue that's just going to get worse. And in Florida, of course, the peninsula sticking out in um, warm and warming waters. There is a, if, if I've got it right, I'm not a Florida reporter, of course, there is a, a state-run insurance agency, um, right? Like there is an option to get insurance through the state because so many insurance carriers have backed out of the Sunshine State. And I think some of what is at play here, obviously climate change, but also um, they're trying to work with insurance carriers to keep them here, keep as many of them here as long as possible. People who live in these dangerous areas are being subsidized. I mean, we've known for how long that climate change is going to affect uh, massive storms. And so this is just one of those effects that people have said is going to be coming down the pike. Um, and yet being able to get insurance uh, is is subsidized by all the rest of us that also pay into these programs. And it's just one of those areas where I think we're not taking climate change seriously enough um, and just trying to, you know, put band-aids on the problem and hope we can survive until next year. And until we take climate change more seriously, you know, these we're going to keep having these kinds of stories year after year. One more nugget. Don't think it'll take too long. Carolina Panthers are in need of a general manager after Scott Fitterer was fired on Monday following a two-win, 15-loss season, which was bad enough for last in the NFL and the second-worst campaign in franchise history. If you're thinking, well, at least Carolina gets the number one overall pick, well, then you would be wrong. That's because Carolina previously dealt this year's draft pick away. Others are welcome to jump in if you so dare. Jason, you're a Panthers <laughs> fan. Uh, what would you like to see them do here in this offseason? I don't know. I mean, I am a Panther fan. They just kind of <laughs> stink. Uh, hopefully, we'll win a few more games next year and, and come back the year after that and, and, and maybe try to run it back at that point. I, as I've been saying, you know, I still like Bryce. I think he's got potential. We'll see what happens. Maybe if we get a new coach in there, but... 
Um, we'll see what happens with the owner, right? I mean, it, it's it's possible that some of these problems stem from the very top, right? I mean, we saw him throw it's the, possible. the cup. <laughs> it's possible? I'm trying to be diplomatic. I mean, we saw him throw the uh, cup of water, right? But, yeah, I don't know. It, it's cloudy days ahead still for the Panthers, I think. So I like uh, uh, college sports more than more than professional, but I just have to make the Sir Purr joke of what's that bear doing? I know it's a couple <laughs> years old now, but it's like just still funny. Ruben, I got about 20 seconds for you. I would never trash the Panthers because I live in the town of the Commanders. So we uh, <laughs> we know all about losing as well. Friday News Roundup here on Due South. We've got a cast of characters. In studio, it's Jason DeBruin, Don Vaughn, and Luciana Perez-Uribe. Ruben Jones is on the line from the D.C. metro area. Still to come, a mega gas station fuels strong opinions and an eight-hour meeting of local leaders. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio. Stick around, please. Due South here on WUNC Friday Vibes in the studio. And as usual, you're getting a review of North Carolina news and politics. I'm Jeff here with Jason, Don, Luciana, and Ruben. Quick question for you, the listener. Are you partaking in sober January or sober annuary or maybe embarking on damp January? Saw that term in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. Uh, If your drinking habits patterns have shifted in a notable way in the last couple of Weeks, we're interested uh, to hear from you. What impacts are you seeing, if any? Mood, sleep, appetite, nothing at all? Email us at south at wunc.org. That's D U E S O U T H at wunc.org. I'm also on uh, the former Twitter at J underscore Tibbs, D T I B S. We're working on a program about drinking, drinking consumption, damp, and sober January uh, for later this month. All right, back to our panel, North Carolina News Roundup, and we're going to head to Mebane and Bucky's. We don't need this in Mebane. We don't need this. So I'm here for our town because I don't think that we need 1,200 to 2,500 cars per hour bringing their exhaust and environmental um, health exposures into our city. I love it. I love the brisket. I love the energy. I think it will bring a lot of revenue to Alamance County. It will, of course, uh, bring a lot more people in, which will also help other businesses as well. All right. So Bucky's, which I know very little of, is a super duper gas station, a mega complex gas station. I mean, Sheets looks like, uh, I don't know, a port john compared to Bucky's. That m- might not actually be fair, but I'm having a little fun here. And the stretch of road between Guilford County and Alamance, or through Guilford and Alamance, the, the 4085 crossover. It's the, the most congested, it's the busiest stretch of road in our state. And there's this push to bring a Bucky's to Mebane. And Bucky's would include 120 gas pumps. I don't really know why that's necessary. I've never, and I drive west all the time on 40. I've never once driven west on 40 and pulled off and like had to wait for gas or been in a stretch where I'm like, ah, there's no gas stations around here. Gosh. Uh, so anyway, I don't have any particular knowledge or complex understanding of this, but this is something that has come to the forefront this week in Mebbin. Uh, there was an eight hour city council meeting. I'm just dropping in context here. I don't get it. Like, I don't, I mean, I understand why people are upset, but. Does anyone want to jump in here on Bucky's? I think the the clips that you pay you played really just sum up anything new. 
You know, I don't yeah. like it because of all the bad things. I love it because of all the new things. And that's really any sort of development. When Popeye's opened in Durham, um, when I was working in Durham, we all checked it out. And there's a big, long line because you're like, oh, it's something new. Let's check it out. So obviously it's going to be pretty, it's going to bring all that traffic and the cars and exhaust that they don't want for a while. 120 pumps. I mean, I guess it's a guarantee there's always going to be an empty pump or if one breaks down, you still at the other 119. I, I, I mean, how many electric I, charging stations? Yeah. Are you going to have 400 of them? And also, maybe this is just me not knowing much about economics, but like, as you said, there's a lot of other gas stations. Are people just going to, you know, drive one exit further or less? And are these other gas stations going to go out of business? Some of them lo- locally owned? I don't know. Again, maybe I just don't understand it very well, but I feel like there's sort of going to be a bit of a Walmart effect here where everybody now goes to Bucky's and then in a, you know, 10 mile stretch both ways, you have these, you know, smaller businesses that relied on that 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 traffic mm-hmm. stopping in to to get some gas and then also getting a, you know, whatever, a candy bar, a drink, whatever. Um, curious what's going to happen to all those places. They're not going to be happy about it. Absolutely but, not. But if those 120 pumps go out and the next stop is their business, they would be. Yeah. Uh, we asked some folks on well, we put it, the question out to Twitter to explain Bucky's to us because you can hear uh, my ignorance. Uh, and here are some of the comments we got. Nick says on Twitter, Bucky's is to a gas station what a super Walmart is to an old five and dime. It's like a tourist trap on steroids crossed with a truck stop. And if you're traveling across the country with kids who are tired of being in the car, it's a perfect break while you get gas. I would say there's also like a lot of green areas that could be a perfect space for kids where you can run around and off to buy stuff. There's a lot of great rest areas. We stop at those rest areas all the time. I mean, they're they're really nice. They're well-maintained. The bathrooms are clean. I don't know. What's wrong with those? Well, that's different. You're not there to get gas, right? (laughs) I mean, if you drive up to New York and everything, there's like those center median things that are just concrete and all that, and it's convenient. So maybe that's really what it's about. It's about being convenient and having a lot of stuff there. And I guess you know what you're going to get, right? I mean, like 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 we're saying, you're guaranteed that you can get get some gas. You know, you know that they have all kinds of different food. You got whatever. Let's say you have three kids. You know, there's going to be something for each one of them. Nobody's going to be complaining. I don't know. I guess that might be part of the appeal. The, the convenience. You said it. I mean, the convenience is, is it. Yeah. The mascot would that. pull my two and a half year old in. I'm sorry, Luciana, what would you say? Oh, I was just going to say for me, it's the convenience as well. Yeah. So I've driven like cross country multiple times. Okay. And sometimes a gas station will say that it's like a quick exit. And then you take it and you're 10 minute drive plus, 20 minute oh. drive plus. Oh. So if it's a quick exit, you get what you ha- need and, you know, you can get out of there fast. For me, that's a, a huge thing. Ruben, there are, are, are there are a lot of people down south that really love Bucky's. They know more than we do, I think. But here's what I'll say: I in my hometown, there was a gas station that they tried to convert into a very fancy restaurant. It did not work. It's a gas station. For me, you go in, you go out, you find a good, clean bathroom, and then you're on your way. I'm not looking to to wait in line for for a gas station. But that's just me. Maybe it's great. Two Maybe more, you don't yeah. wait in line, right? It's 120 yeah. pounds. <laughs> Although in Durham, they have turned gas stations into restaurants. <laughs> I, all right. A couple Snacks. more quick comments here. Uh, Jose on Twitter writes in, My wife and I checked out one for the first time during our holiday road trip as we drove through Georgia and capital letters. We loved it! Exclamation point. It is truly an American experience. John uh, shares on, I keep calling it Twitter, the X. Uh, ben once in SC and was told to try the brisket. It was better than gas station brisket should be. And Tyler, this is the last one, I promise. Tyler uh, writes in, I'm so sad that the Mebane City Council allowed the special use permit. Even more discouraging was how they held the meeting. As a resident of Mebane, Bucky's will be irrevocably 
will irrevocably harm our community, and there is nothing we can do now. I mean, I don't know if there's nothing that can be done now, but um, those are some comments that came in uh, via the Twitter. Bucky's coming to Mebane. Uh, I don't know that this is a story we're going to revisit. But the brisket maybe, maybe is a story. Is. People are <laughs> talking know, about that's the brisket. Interesting. Maybe Due South on the Road is going to go to Mebane. Mm-hmm. We can do a blind taste test of um, live broadcast. Live like broadcast that. from the yeah. Mebane Bucky's while you're eating while you're eating brisket. Oh man! Friday <laughs> news roundup here on uh, Due South. We've got Don Vaughn. Luciana Perez Uribe, Jason DeBruin, and Ruben Jones. We're going to pivot here for uh, just a few minutes and spend a little bit of time with Richard Stradling from the News and Observer. Recently, I spoke with Richard. He's a transportation reporter, and I asked about big, notable transportation happenings uh, that are taking place uh, on the horizon here in 2024. We're going to hear from Richard for a bit, and then we'll return to our panelists. Uh, As for my conversation with Richard uh, when I teed him up on 2024, he first went to RDU. And there's a lot. I'm not sure where I would start. I mean, uh, it was groundbreaking for the um, the new runway at Raleigh-Durham International Airport, which um, is badly needed. The work on that's going to begin this year. That's going to be part of a lot of changes at RDU. They're, they're expanding the terminals. They're building new uh, remote parking. Um, they have plans for moving the uh, rental car area to within walking distance of the terminals, um, so they have they have a couple billion dollars worth of projects that they're they're getting started on. But the the runway is key. Um, finishing 540, the outer loop around Raleigh. Um, the contracts have been let for that. That work is going to get underway. The last leg is between Nightdale and I40 down south of Garner. Um, Raleigh is beginning its bus rapid transit line uh, construction on that. The first one in North Carolina. This will run from downtown um, out east uh, along Newburn Avenue past uh, Wake Med. Um, this will, this will um, be a new type of transit for the Triangle mm-hmm. and for North Carolina, um, and that's supposed to get, start, or get started this year and will be ready by the end of 2025. Um, we've got some big road projects that, are, that have been in, in going on for years now, the, uh, the the Beltline widening, the last section of the Beltline around Raleigh, and then the I-40 widening south of Raleigh down into Johnston County. Um, those are starting to look like they're going to get finished, but they're, they're, they're behind schedule. Uh, talk to us a little bit about rail. As we think back sure. on 2023, a billion-dollar grant was announced um, Seems major. Oh, it's major. It's the um, it's the largest. I mean, the DOT gets a lot of federal money for various projects um, continually, but this is the largest single grant DOT has ever gotten, and this will allow them to build out um, a, a rail corridor, passenger rail corridor from Raleigh to Wake Forest, and it's the first part of what will be a high speed uh, train from Raleigh to Richmond, which will then hook into you know, the the rail corridor on up to Washington, D.C. and the Northeast. Um, so DOT will use this section for to extend the Piedmont. So the Piedmont, which runs between Raleigh and Charlotte, will now run between Wake Forest and Charlotte when this, when this line opens. All right. A curious, maybe nosy, maybe selfish question here, Richard. Um, I, I live, I don't know, 13 minutes from RDU. I love some of these low-cost carriers. There's a Velo, there's Breeze, there are others, there's Spirit. Um, selfishly, I want to ask about a very specific route, which is the RDU to Memphis direct flight that was in in uh, in operation from like May until September. I was getting ready. I want to go to Memphis. I've never been. 
and it just went away in November, and I was sad. Um, you don't have to answer my my Memphis dreams here, but tell me about what is on the horizon at RDU in 2024. Yeah, so it's it's been fascinating to watch because you know the pandemic um, basically shut down the airline industry, and and a lot of flights went away from RDU, and it was no real guarantee everything would come back. And in and in fact, it's come back much faster than RDU expected. I think anybody in the airline industry expected. Um, there are more airlines now at RDU than there ever have been, and um, there's 14 of them hmm. out of Terminal 2. Wow. There's so many they can't fit the names on the signs. They have to replace the signs. Huh. Um, and so we have and we have more flights to international destinations than we've ever had. Um, Lufthansa is going is to start um, nonstops to uh, Germany in June, uh, Aeromexico to Mexico City in July. You know, we have Bahamas Air. We have uh, Iceland Air. Um, Air France, which is the first foreign flag carrier we've had at RDU. So it's really kind of an exciting time. You you mentioned um, low-cost carriers, and w- one thing you have with them, and this may explain the, the Memphis flight, is a lot of the – they will fly seasonal. Um, and so if they, they see that there's a niche um, during a certain time of year, um, you know, like to Rochester, New York, or Buffalo, New York, or Trenton, New Jersey, or something. They'll fly that flight, but then, in, like, wintertime comes, and they, they – They'll stop, but then they'll start it up again. So maybe your Memphis flight will come back. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I don't know if there's a season. I, no, no, I don't know not if sure there's, if there's a, season a season for Memphis. Right? I don't know if there's a season for Trenton, New Jersey, but maybe we'll <laughs> we'll lift that out uh, in, in post-production. Last one for me, maybe a fun one. Uh, one city that you have not flown directly to from Raleigh, which you hope to fly directly to from Raleigh in 2024. Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, my, my hometown is Cincinnati, and for a while you could not fly directly to Cincinnati, but Delta has just uh, resumed that flight. Um, I do know that a popular overseas flight, if I could just, you know, go there, oh, um, is uh, Dublin, mm. um, Ireland. But, you know, now that we have uh, direct flights to London, Paris, and Frankfurt, and Reykjavik, um, I'm not sure we're going to get a direct flight. Right, to, just to be clear, Dublin. RDU does not have a direct flight to Dublin at this point. They do not, no. And and okay. I'm not sure who would provide that at this this point. But at one time I heard that, you know, they know, um, the airlines and the airport knows where people go. Yeah. All right. So they know that just because you flew to New York doesn't mean that's where you ended up. So you bought a ticket to Dublin. Um, and they have all that data. So yeah. they know where people are going. And at one point I heard that Dublin was, um, you know, one of the one of the high ranking hmm. overseas destinations for people from the Triangle. That is Richard Stradling, transportation reporter at The News and Observer. He has joined us for a couple of different conversations here on Do South. Reminder that you can find past episodes at DoSouthRadio.org. Right there, we're talking about some of the uh, travel expectations, changes, and developments on the horizon in 2024. Back to our panel now on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Interested? If you could wave your magic travel wand and have an RDU flight to uh, anywhere in the world, a direct flight, uh, where would it be, Jason DeBruin? Mine's just very selfish. As a lot of people might know, I'm Dutch from the Netherlands, so I got a lot of family that's still in, ne- in the Netherlands. So I'd like to see a direct flight to Amsterdam. Uh, but as Richard noted, we already have ones to Frankfurt and Paris, so that seems probably a little bit lower on the uh, on the likelihood. Don. I don't know. I want to go to Ireland now since Richard was talking about it. (laughs) Sounds good. Have you ever been? Nope. All right. Luciana? So mine's selfish, too. Um, I was born in Peru. My family's still there, so I want a direct flight there. Ruben? Well, Reykjavik is great. Iceland is my favorite trip I've taken. But I I think I heard San Diego is is next, or there already is, and and I recently visited San Diego. Yeah. 
that's just it's an amazing area I'll throw Rome on the list uh, easy jumping off point to points throughout Italy uh, and I'll be on that Paris flight in uh, a few weeks with my wife and yeah I'm excited about it executive <laughs> producer Aaron Kiever giving me a sassy little shake of the head from behind the glass uh, alright final moment here on Due South on our way out let's touch on the Iowa Republican caucuses they begin Monday at 7pm apparently they missed the memo that it's a holiday on Monday the Democrats are holding their caucuses later on that seems just as well following the colossal missteps that uh, took place four years ago on the Democratic side I think we're still waiting for a winner uh, in those 2020 Democratic caucuses anyway. Real question here. Hawkeyeing into Monday, how much does Trump win by and who finishes second? Reuben Jones. Uh, definitely Trump wins, I would think, by double digits, but the momentum seems to be with Nikki Haley. If Ron DeSantis doesn't come in second, that, that is a, a big blow for him. New, uh, Nikki Haley wants to have the momentum going into New Hampshire, where she's put a lot of attention on. Luciana Perez-Aribe. I'm going to have to say uh, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley second, like Trump first, Nikki Haley second. Don, any uh, any possibility that Donald Trump doesn't win there, the caucuses? There's always a possibility, yeah, which is. is why primaries are fun. Remember when Biden in the South Carolina primary, you know, last round? So mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll see it next week, but there'll be some sort of primary surprise. I suppose you could make the argument that in a caucus, Trump perhaps has a bit of a disadvantage because everybody knows like who you're supporting and who you're voting for. It's not one of these blind ballots. And so if there's like really strong Nikki Haley support, somebody in a in a gym somewhere might be able to talk some people into her. But I mean, I, I don't see it happening. I see it being Trump by, by double digits. But the story being, does Nikki Haley finish second and does she finish within shouting distance so that she can build momentum? Iowa Republican caucuses just a few days away. We're less than two months from the Super Tuesday primary here in North Carolina and early voting begins in a little bit more than a month. Big thanks to our panel of journalists who joined us here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief at the News and Observer. Luciana Perez-Aribe, state politics reporter at the NNO. Ruben Jones, Washington reporter covering North Carolina for Spectrum News. And last, never least in my book, Jason DeBruin, WNC health reporter. Hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. This episode of the North Carolina Friday News Roundup was produced by Aaron Kiever and engineered by Denarius Thomas. New South's other excellent producers are Stacia Brown, Coldell Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. For the one and only Leonida Inge, I'm Jeff Tiberi. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk to you again on Monday. Monday.